It is really a pleasure uh, to be up here this morning, and it's really, it's kind of ridiculous that I have the honor of standing up here and getting to preach. Uh, I am incredibly thankful to serve Christ here at Southwestern um, by serving students primarily. I'm thankful for that honor and opportunity. I also want to express my thanks and gratitude to Dr. Dockery for being able to be a part of the team and being able to preach up here today. It's very neat, so thanks, Dr. Dockery. Also want to thank faculty and staff, um, namely, hey, Jim, Bob, you and your team do an awesome job every week and every time we're in here, so thank you all for that. But also our students, you all work really hard, and it's not easy to be a student, um, particularly in TBC, so looking at you, Dr. Bates, take it easy in finals, okay? You all have a hard reality. You work hard, you work, you have family commitments, so much going on. And I just want to let you know it's an honor to work to make much of Christ with you all day in and day out here. Now, I know Dr. Dockery, when he talked about what I do around here, I wear a lot of different hats. I'm gonna try to wear the pastor type hat today, okay? That's the goal. So not Dean of Students hat or, you know, whatever other one, that's the one I'm aiming for. So as Dr. Dockery mentioned, I'm a student here. So I'm in the same boat as many of you right now. I don't know how many of you guys actually knew that, but I'm in the, I really should be writing my dissertation phase of my dissertation right now. So you know how to pray for me a little more specifically. But in the course of my theological education, I, I took a preaching class. Uh, not here, Dr. Oz, so that's my out. I'm gonna go ahead and give myself an excuse. Uh, and in that class, they taught us how to preach, how to preach a good sermon. So for those of you in preaching class, you can judge me silently after. You can talk to me about it. We'll see how we do today. Well, in that class, they talked to you about how to make good illustrations. And when they talk about how to make good illustrations, they tell you to do two things. Build illustrations that connect with you, the speaker, because you can speak of them convictionally and you can connect with it and really transfer what you're trying to communicate by your emotion. And the second thing that they teach you to do is build illustrations that connect with your audience, all right? The congregation, give them places to have a handhold and connect with what you're saying and convey a theological idea to the audience. Well, I'm gonna do at least half of that today. And I'm gonna talk about one of the things Dr. Darkery mentioned. So I'm gonna talk about basketball, all right? Clearly the part that speaks to me, unless you, I understand that. I know we're in Texas and for some reason you all like to play with that weird oval shaped ball that doesn't bounce back up when you drop it. I get all that, right? But I'm a very proud alumnus of the University of Kentucky where I grew up, go cats. And we grow up living and breathing and eating and sleeping Kentucky basketball, all right? We are the same brand of crazy as some of you Longhorns and some of you Aggies, all right? We're just used to winning. Uh, yeah, I went there, all right? Just for the record, I had Alabama in there, but cut that for you too, all right? That's just smart. So I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about Kentucky basketball because for some reason in the state of Texas, you all don't know much about it, so we're gonna talk about it. And I'm gonna refer to it as we, all right? Because I'm part of it. I'm part of the team and care. So Kentucky basketball has a storied history. We're the winningest program in college basketball history with 2,375 wins, and I did not have to Google that, just so you know, all right? Now, some of you fact checkers will be like, hang on, Kansas is the most winning program of all time. And that would have been true until about a month ago where they had to vacate 15 wins because they're cheaters, all right? So we're back on top, winningest program in college basketball history. 
We have eight national championships, and in a prophetic word, nine in April of next year. I can't wait, all right? And we're regarded as the gold standard of college basketball, having produced more number one draft picks than any other school in the nation, all right? Just go down the list and point to point guards and centers and forwards. It's amazing, right? But in reality, the last decade or so, it hasn't really felt like we're the gold standard. Just hasn't. In 2012, Coach Cal, our coach, delivered our eighth national championship, delivering on the promise of bringing our program back to national prominence, making it Camelot once again. But since then, despite multiple Final Four runs, deep runs into the tournaments, number one draft picks, we haven't won another title. 10 years, that's too long. Kentucky fans are itchy. We're ready to win another national championship. You see, our history as Kentucky basketball fans informs our hope and our expectation. That's what it does. We have a lot to be pulling from, and we expect the same thing. Well, this morning, we're gonna read Psalm 126 again, and we're gonna capture and see a much weightier moment for ancient Israel and for us today. We're gonna think about how the psalmist's desire for a return to the good old days points them forward and points us forward to a hopeful outcome today. And as I was preparing this, I realized there's a really strong subtext of history and hope, particularly tied to this place and this institution. It's not the point I'm making, I just wanna point out the subtext that's also happening. So let's read Psalm 126 again. The psalmist says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Lord, we come to you this morning reading your word, singing your word, asking and hoping that you will do something incredible. We pray that this moment would go beyond an opportunity to get out of an hour of work or fulfill a chapel requirement. But God, as we open your word, we ask your spirit to do something in us, for us, and through us for your glory. So do it now, amen. All right, let's start with this passage by unpacking the text and understanding what it means first by understanding what the psalm is. This is known as a song of ascent, a psalm of ascent. Now, the psalms of ascent are 15 psalms written by David, Solomon, and some others, which were sang and recited and remembered traditionally during the ascent up to Jerusalem for the people of Israel on their way to the holy city to observe the various religious holidays and traditions that were prescribed to them in the law. The purpose of them is to remember and reflect and to hope and to expect more. These are practices we often don't engage in enough, right? We remember when we take communion. It's kind of what we do. We don't often reflect on what the Lord has done. Now, this particular song, psalm, it does all of these things for the people of Israel. This psalm is essentially a core memory 
for the people of Israel. I know some of you are familiar with the movie Inside Out, cry every time I watch it. Something about me, Pixar movies just get me. But this is a core memory for Israel, all right? It's this mixture of complex emotions that they've had and that they've walked through that explains who they are and who they hope to be continually. It also explains their present. This psalm forces them to remember their past and allowed them to have a hopeful future. The physical act tied to these songs walking up to Jerusalem is a reminder that they are going somewhere bigger than them, higher than them. And it's something we don't do and we should more often is remember on our ascent. So we're gonna look at this passage twice and we're gonna have two words that we kind of view it through, okay? We're gonna view this passage with an eye on Israel's history, and then an eye on their hope. And then we're gonna run right back through it with the lens, history, and hope for you and for me. So let's first examine this passage, considering Israel's experience up to this moment. The first three verses. Let's examine Israel's history. Now the story of Israel was significant, particularly for us sitting in this room today, ready to lay it all on the line for the advancement of the gospel in the kingdom of God. It's a significant history. And the song starts out with a memory of those heading up to Jerusalem, verse one, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Has an impact. The first three verses, this remembering, first we have to remember the grander story of Israel. It's gonna have significant impact on the back half. So let's remember the story. And I'm gonna apologize, Dr. Dodd and Dr. Williams. I'm gonna leave some highlights out of the Old Testament. Forgive me, all right? We can talk about what I missed later. So here we go. Summary of the Old Testament in four minutes. God creates the world, Genesis 1. Man falls and is essentially eternal. They're not essentially, they're eternally separated from God, Genesis 3. No need to freak out yet. This is all part of the plan and there's a solution. God selects a guy named Abram and makes some hefty commitments to this guy, all right? Not based on who he was, not based on what he had done, but based on God's purpose and God's promise. Genesis 12, 13, fairly important. We're gonna talk about that quite a bit. God begins to make good on that promise by giving him a son of promise, Genesis 21. An important happening to that son of promise was Abraham's willingness to kill him and to sacrifice him because that's what God asked, revealing his faith, Genesis 22. Fast forward, Abraham's people begin to fill the earth, making good on some of the promise that was made to him. But as they fill the earth, man, they beef it. They mess up repeatedly, right? But God keeps his covenant and he eventually renames one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob, Israel. Changing his name and giving him the promise of kings. Kings are coming, Genesis 35. Fast forward, God calls Moses, one of Israel's people, to lead the sons and daughters of Abraham out of slavery, Exodus 3. In their journey, which had the promise of prosperity tied to it, important for this psalm, God provides and clarifies expectations for his people making them different in their world and establishing rules of engagement for them, Exodus 20 and on through the law. You see, some of those regulations and rules and expectations, God defined and designed how Israel was supposed to interact with God. God defined and designed how they were supposed to interact with the created order. And then God defined and designed how they were supposed to interact and engage with the nations around them. 
The establishment of these practices, of their practices and their journey leads them ultimately to Jerusalem, the land of promise, where they plant roots, they establish and build a temple, and that would become the center of worship and government for them, 2 Samuel 6. Now, they continue in this repeating cycle of following well for a minute, totally beefing it, repenting of it, then seeking justice, having justice exercised on them again and again and again. And part of the plan, consequence, I'm gonna go with plan, for the people after following bad kings, seeing the kingdom split, not having faith in their God, not following his precepts and practices, they're taken away in a hostile exile to Babylon, Jeremiah 39. It was only after they were released from captivity and returned to Jerusalem that this song was likely written. In the moment, 70 years of hostile captivity in Babylon, I bet they didn't have much to be happy about. I don't think they could have really penned a psalm like this in the middle of captivity. They were captured by a hostile geopolitical state, their temple was destroyed, and they were told to worship other gods and other guys. Israel being given every opportunity up until that point, every grace up until that point was incapable of following God the way that he demanded. They were incapable of doing it. They couldn't get over the hump to establish this permanent peace and this permanent state of belonging that God wanted for them. This state that was a constant, permanent, positive presence to the nations. But God knew they couldn't. He knew they couldn't get over that hump and he set a plan before the foundations of the world, plan A, to cover it. And we're gonna talk about that in a moment. But God, also knowing that they couldn't get it done on their own, knew that they were completely incapable of getting out of captivity on their own. They couldn't break that cycle for themselves. They couldn't just be like, hey man, we're leaving, we're going home. That's not the way that it was gonna work. But God, making good on his promise and good on his word, makes a way. We learn in Ezra 1 that God makes their release possible. They weren't released for good behavior, for time served, for their merit or anything that they had done. They were released because the word of the Lord had to be fulfilled and the Lord gave Cyrus a vision to let them go so that they could go back home. The history of Israel leads us to this moment of deliverance. Their history had intention and purpose to shape them, to fulfill the word of the Lord, and to build to the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Told you that was important. So we go to verse one, and we see they tell us that God restored our fortunes. God restored the fortunes of Zion. And when, they, when that happened, they were euphoric about it over the moon, like those who dream is the way that the psalmist writes it here. You think about the happiest you've ever been, all right? Wedding day, my wife is here, wedding day, birth of kids, all right? Graduation day, some of you, that's a hopeful future for you, all right? You think about the happiest you've ever been and then multiply that out by a ton and you might get there. Their return was remarkable and the realization was just as remarkable. God sees them. God has a plan for them. God makes good on their promises and loves them, returning them to a level of joy that they hadn't seen for decades because they got to come home to this promised land where the presence of God was meant to reside. They got back to the center of their lives and they emoted as such. 
Ancient Israel literally got to see, as Tolkien says, the undoing of all the sad things. They got to see that in reality. And then verse two shows us, then their mouth was filled with laughter and their tongue with shouts of joy. They didn't take the joy like you and me. When someone's baptized at church, we put a weird smile on and we clap lightly. That's not the joy that they're experiencing here. They are out of their minds excited. Side note, we should celebrate salvation and baptisms more. That's just a free one, okay? The image of joy that they're having, I bet resembled the joy that many of you experienced last night when the Rangers won game five, right? And you're proving my point, all right? Well done, thanks, all right? This level of joy is only ever really seen and replicated in sporting events, these cathedrals of religion that we go to today, right? Where we go and we see a national championship won. Maybe the Dallas Cowboys won a Super Bowl, Terry. I don't know, maybe, all right? You might have that level of joy. That's the only other place we see this level of joy that they're experiencing. I bet you and I in a church setting have never had this moment. Never had our tongues filled with laughter. But their history, it didn't just get noticed by them. Their history and their experiences were witnessed by the nations. The end of verse two shows us how the nations were impacted and took serious note of Israel's situation and restoration. The end of verse two, then they said among the nations. So this is kind of the nations speaking to each other. The Lord has done great things for them. The nations took notice of what had happened. Their move from non-existence to prominence to desolation and destruction back to restoration, the journey was noticeable. But we need to realize what specifically the nations are noticing here. The nations noticed what? That the Lord had done great things for them. Not that they had done great things for themselves. Their name wasn't on them. Their name was recognized because of what God had done for them. You see, that was the point the entire time. God didn't want the Israelites to be noticed because of how awesome they were. God wanted to receive the glory for who Israel was. That's why he created all things. That's why he selected Israel. That's why he provided them the law in this countercultural standard of living. That's why when they prospered, two things would take place. One, that God would receive glory from their joyful obedience and praise and that the nations would be blessed by them. That was one reason. And then the second reason is that the nations would take notice and want in on some of that action. All right, Old Testament idea we see, and I'd be happy to wrestle around that, and we see it totally realized in the New Testament. These verses, one through three, culminate with Israel making the same declaration that the nations made. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. Wow, he's awesome. You see, it's likely they had a knowledge of how good God was, right? They had a knowledge of it. They experienced him, they in their history seen him do amazing things, but it wasn't until someone else took notice that they really stopped and took stock of it and appreciated it. So often we do that, right? We think our marriage is a hot mess until somebody's like, oh man, your marriage is really great. And then we step back and you're like, yeah, my marriage is great, all right? We step back and we don't appreciate how great our kids are. Kids, you all are wonderful, all right? But we don't really appreciate it until somebody comes around and like, man, they're really well behaved. And you're like, yeah, my kids are great. We don't appreciate what God has provided until someone else notices. 
But for Israel, it's this realization of contentment on what God has done that they suddenly aren't content anymore. Sure, God had brought them back from exile in Babylon. The sad things are becoming untrue. They're optimistic about their future for the first time in a long time, and they're not content. Verse four, this weird transition. God, you're so good. Hey, restore our fortunes. God, you're so good, but I'd really like you to finish and do some more. That's what's happening here. For us, we take this phrase, restore our fortune, O Lord. And in an American mentality and in a Western mentality, our minds run to the financial, right? All right, we think that Israel is asking for this level of wealth that Solomon had. We think that they're asking for the level of power and influence that David had. We think that they're asking for this might of God army that they had seen in the generations before them. And I'm gonna be real honest with you, I stumbled over this. I didn't understand what was going on. So I phoned some friends, thanks OT guys, I appreciate you so much. And they helped me kind of walk through an understanding. You see that word fortunes, it could go one of two ways. The word could be captives, and some of your translations might say return our captives, or it could be restore our fortunes. And I was like, which one is it? Because that feels like very, very, you know, disconnected from one another, right? But thanks to some good teachers, they kind of brought these two things together for me. And the idea is that what they're asking for is for God's people to be returned to God's place that he had promised, prospering for the good of the world. That's what the request is here. The request is this holistic thing. It's not just put some fat money in my pocket. It's not just make us powerful again. It's this whole picture of God, you have a plan for us. Bring us back and establish it. Let it be. It's here we also see how their history is informing their hope. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Verse five, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Israel's history, the story of God's established and repeating faithfulness enabled them to go back to God after rejoicing at how incredibly amazing he had been and to come and say, can I have some more? Their entire work, the entire work had yet to be completed. So their acknowledgement that it's not over is telling. They know, of course, that more calamity is coming. More sadness is on the horizon. There's more mourning that's going to come. Their history informed too much to not think that that would be the case. But they also would see the intentionality that God had in their blood, their sweat, their tears in bringing them back. They came to the table and said, God, thank you, you're so good, but man, we'd sure love it if you did some more. God had yet to complete the restoration in full of all of their people and the place, and they most definitely had not yet seen this long-awaited Messiah that was promised, so they had more to ask for. And they saw themselves as those that were willing to labor for it. This imagery of laboring in the fields and going out and sowing seed and and bringing a harvest back, they were willing to work for it. Their history, the story of God's selection and faithfulness to them gave them bold assurance and ability to hope for God to do more. But now let's think beyond Israel and understand our history and our hope today. 
for the Christian in the room, those people that have repented of their sins and placed their eternal hope and faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection, just so we're defining some terms. Let's look at our history because our history actually builds on this history. It builds on the history of Israel because our savior is the hope of Israel. It's only through the person and the work of Jesus that Israel's requests here can actually be realized. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, accessed by us through faith. For you and for me, the reality that Christ stepped into our hot mess of a life is a miracle. Your history Christian, as young as my kids in the room and as old as, well, I won't say names, but as old as some of you in the room, all right? Your history is part of your story. You were a sinner, separated from God, dead in your trespasses and sins, pursuing the prince of the power of the air. This means you pursued pride, pornography, power, money, anything in relationships that made you the king of your life. That was your pursuit. That's your history. You can put your own flair on it. You can write your own memories into it. And your history is a mess. It's just the reality that we're walking in. And you could sit here in awkward silence for the rest of the day and dwell on your history and you still wouldn't find the depths of sin that are present in your heart and in your life. But your history didn't stop with you sitting in darkness and lostness separated from God, did it? God, in the work of Christ, stepped in and redeemed you. You heard the gospel and you responded in faith and in following It's what led you to this moment in this weirdly big room, listening to me talk about Psalm 126 and listening to him sung. It's what brought us here together today. So we can look back similar to Israel and say our history as bleak as it was has led to our rejoicing today. So recently my my family, we were going through the membership process at a local church. And if you're looking for a church, I'd love to tell you about the church we're a part of as we've been very blessed by it. But part of the membership journey for our church is to sit down and to explain our understanding of the gospel and how that gospel has transformed our lives. Well, I've gotta admit to you that neither my wife nor I really emulated an Israel experience here in verses one through three. We did not recount our stories with mouths full of laughter and tongues with shouts of joy. That's not how we told our story. My story, it goes something like this. I was raised in a good Southern Baptist home to be a very moral kid, all right? I walked the straight and narrow. My dad was a police officer and he kept me on the straight and narrow actually. And I heard the gospel every Sunday at church and every Wednesday at church and I repented and I believed. What a story. It's a miracle of a story. Movement from death to life, a heart of stone to a living, beating thing. God did that. And I tell the story like I got a mouthful of dry toast. That's the way we communicate this miracle of salvation that God has done. The Lord has done great things for me. He has saved me from my sin. And I respond like a person that only received an offer to extend my car's manufacturer warranty. I pray I could become a person that rejoices in the work of Christ in my life. Lord, forgive me when I functionally take it for granted. 
One commentator says it like this. Indeed, the whole work of redemption is so stupendous in its scheme, execution, and application that to eternity, God's people will not cease to admire it. And yet we do. We do cease to admire it. Your history is a testimony of God's goodness in the gospel. So how do we take that goodness? How do we take that history that we have and inform our hope now and today? Our hope, much like Israel's, is that we would be God's people, existing where God wants us, blessing the world. Our hope is the hope of the gospel, eternal union with Christ. Our hope is becoming more like Jesus in the here and in the hereafter. Our hope is belonging to a flourishing church community that drives to make much of Jesus in our attitudes and in our affections and in our actions. Our hope is the hope of nations worshiping the eternal king. But our hope has a purpose attached to it, not ending with us. Remember for Israel, their hope, their history informed their hope and they pleaded with God based on it, crying tears and laboring for more. But we didn't dwell quite long enough on verse two. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Our history, the incredible experience of the gospel informs our hope, but our hope is meant for a greater purpose in this world, to give the nations a reason to pause and to take notice and admire what God has done and the God that we serve. The blessing that was given to Abraham and in Israel from Genesis 12 and on, I actually argue Genesis 1, it revolutionizes just not your little sterile Texas reality. But this gospel, this message of hope and our history within it can revolutionize the nations. So what are you and I pouring our tears out over? What are you and I willing to labor in tears for? It's too often we get distracted by lesser things. And I'm just gonna say it, tests are coming up. Spoiler alert, it's a good thing and a lesser thing than what we're talking about. We have holiday seasons coming up where we have to work out schedules, lesser thing. We let these lesser things force us to abandon the responsibility that we have. We settle for the lesser things when we have the chance to herald to the nations what God has done. Now, some of you are called to do that cross-culturally. It's what you're here preparing to do. When Dr. Rankin spoke and preached in chapel, some of you came up and expressed, I'm wrestling with what this means. Some of you were called to go to the nations and tell your history and tell how Christ has saved you and the hope that you have that is the hope of the nations. Some of you are called to do that through faithful disciple-making right now in your local church. Some of you are called to do that by contributing to healthy church formation where you are and where you're going to be called to go in whatever role that is. Senior pastor, youth pastor, intern, choir member, mom, dad, I don't care. You're called to participate in this work in that way. The nations only benefit from the gospel if they admire what the Lord has done in the hearts of believers. And we chase that admiration with words of encouragement to respond to the message of the gospel. The nation's noticing in verse two tracks with a holistic view of scripture. Spoiler alert, the nations join the party, read Revelation. 
Your history and your experience of the gospel is good for you. I'm glad you have it. Your eternal hope that God will do more in you, it must also be good for them. We're called as a community here at Southwestern Seminary. Part of our mission is to be those that prepare people to live out the great commandment and the great commission. Collectively pursuing Jesus around each other as people who belong to good Bible-believing churches and generally acting like Jesus with each other. We're called to be great commission participants, pursuing Jesus and pursuing the lost to faith and discipleship. Now, I know it seems daunting to consider being noticed by the nations. The world is big and we are small, but our God will eternally achieve his purposes and I'm not about to make him a liar. Our history should set our confident hope. Our confident hope should inform our tears and should inform our laboring for his glory that the nations would notice that God saves to the uttermost through the work of Christ. So as we close, I ask that you take a moment to dwell on your history. What is that core memory for you should be the gospel that you can look back on with euphoric rejoicing that sets your anchor and sets your hope? What moved your eternal destiny and daily moves the needle in your life as you are renewed by the gospel day by day as you abide in him and he abides in you? How has that history, that core memory impacted your reality right now in your prayers and what you're asking God to do and in your actions, what you're actually laboring for? Is it impacting what people think about your God? How is that history informing your hope today? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would be those that remember what you have done and we ask that it would matter to us, God, please. We ask that it would matter not only to us, but matter to neighbor and nation. Lord, we ask that we would rejoice in the gospel continually. We ask that we would spill tears over seeing your gospel transform the nations, Lord. And we ask that we would spend our toil to those ends for your glory and your name. Amen.